0: If there's regulatory requirements for provenance, for auditability, for back-to-birth, traceability, if these requirements are there, then these compliance requirements are the business case. Because today, there's a lot of paperwork, it's manual work, it's a lot of, let's say, quality inspectors. If I can digitize all of this, or if I can avoid fines or penalties because I'm not compliant. So this, from our perspective, compliance, process, cost reduction, So that's a business case um, for short-term implementation.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Frontier Talk, the world's first podcast on decentralized identity. I'm Raj Hegde, and in this podcast, we explore the intersection of identity, people, and technology. In his book, Skin in the Game, Nassim Taleb mentions that society revolves around two types of people, doers and pontificators. My guest on the pod today is someone I have looked up to for a while, a doer who is on a mission to fix the hard things that matter. A technologist at heart, he pursued a PhD in physics from R.V. Aachen um, to understand how the world works and is leveraging the power of technology for the greater good of society. He is a highly respected figure in the blockchain space and acts as an advisor to the World Economic Forum as part of its Global Future Council. Here to share his take on how provenance as a fundamental technology can act as a force multiplier to bring about positive change in society, Dr. Carsten Stoker, the founder and CEO of Sferity.
0: Hi, Rash. Um, Thanks for having me on your Frontier Talk and I'm glad to be here today.
1: Welcome to the podcast and um, speaking to a physicist uh, to be honest has been always up there on my bucket list so i'm glad that i could finally scratch it off my list um so let's get started um you've had an interesting career to date spanning across research consulting a stint at the wef and now entrepreneurship so i'm curious to know how were you introduced to to blockchain technology
0: oui, how did i got introduced by blockchain technology Basically, was a big coincidence. So, um, I worked for a big utility, RWE, at this time, and later was kind of, let's say, spun off into energy. I worked at the innovation hub, and then there was a Dutch board member, and the Dutch board member basically wanted to invent the Uber for energy. So, at this time, everyone wanted to invent the Uber for something, the Airbnb for something, to come up with a new dig- digital proposition. And basically it was a Dutch board member. The Dutch board member asked one of his friends or freelancer on his network. And the freelancer said, yes, no, I can start working on this and invent Uber for energy. And what the freelancer in Netherlands did, he basically wrote uh, a LinkedIn message to his network and asked his network, hey, anyone in my network can help me to invent Uber for energy. And then out of the very early Ethereum developer ecosystem, because at this time, there was a Go Ethereum team in Amsterdam and another, I think, C++ Ethereum team in Berlin. And because it was Netherlands and the people from the Netherlands ecosystem said, hey, yes, we, we have this fancy new technology, Ethereum, with all the smart contracts. Why shouldn't we kind of try to not invent the Uber for energy, but the Uber for energy without the Uber in between, with, even with the disintermediation of the Uber, and that's how I got in touch with the um, Ethereum blockchain, and then we developed, as early as 2015 already, a peer-to-peer energy trading, yeah, prototype um, for uh, on based on smart contracts on Ethereum. So for households that offer energy because they have renewable energy, that could do a direct peer-to-peer energy transaction to other households that would like to consume energy, so without the utility, um, yeah. In the uh, in between, without an Uber in between, and that I got, that is how I got in touch with um, the blockchain technology.
1: Right, brilliant. That's so cool. Um, there are so many interesting applications of blockchain today, be it um, decentralized finance or DeFi or for computing. I'm curious to know what uh, got you hooked on to decentralized identity. And more specifically, why did you choose to specifically tackle the challenge of automating identity verification in end-to-end value chains?
0: Yeah, base, basically, um, yeah, as mentioned, we did some dis- did in 2015 some disruptive digitization business model designs, and in all of them there was the problem identity. Yeah, and I think when you do digitization, I think every digitization should start with, with kind of proper identity solution. And um, there's, there's also another thing from, from, from a Nobel Prize winner. He basically said, okay, if we would like to solve the identity um, problem, then we need to solve it end to end. So Which means, so when, um, let's say there's a company right. and I get a company identifier, there must be someone who says, okay, the company is a company so that I can start trusting the company. And this could be, for example, could be, um, in Germany would be Bundesanzeiger, for example. Yeah. So Bundesanzeiger is doing a very verifi- identity verification of a company, mm-hmm. which means if I get a piece of data from that company signed, I can go back, uh, up to the Bundesanzeiger to find out, is it really the company, the reads verity or the, the fake severity. Yeah. And that's, that's right. basically what you call an end to end identity supply chain. That's still not solved in the internet. And on the other hand, so we truly believe today the internet is, uh, internet where data are encrypted, but now we have to transform the internet into an internet where data are encrypted and signed. And the, the signing piece, it's still not solved. It's end to end mm-hmm. identity supply chain nature. It's still a challenge. And for all other use cases, DeFi, smart contracts, uh, autonomous agents, machines that transact value, the identity Problem must be solved, yeah. And we would like to kind of, and the reason why we focus on the identity play, kind of the def- enabling technology in place to do all the other fancy, fancy use cases and digitization propositions.
1: Okay. Um, and to add to that, um, tracking the provenance of goods, for example, um, is critical to ensure regulatory compliance. So I'm assuming that Sperity's technology is used to provide the required visibility to track raw material provenance particularly in highly regulated industries such as um, food and pharma. Um, so what are the industries that you primarily target and why is there a core need for your technology specifically?
0: Yeah, Now, I, w- I would like to, ma- uh, to to mention two things. It's a continuum from my perspective. When I think about identity, decent, last in the internet, on the one hand side, we have the cypherpunk manifesto. So with... Everything is encrypted, and you yeah, have fully autonomous and anonymous transaction systems for humans. It's on one side of the continuum a lot of privacy to protect my data and to make sure it's kind of self-sovereign data, and no data are really leaking about myself. And on the other side of the continuum, it's basically um, yeah full. I would say surveillance of an object, yeah, where I would like to have the full. Back to birth traceability, back to birth life cycle history of an object right. so that are completely two different, um, poles of the continuum. So, and we at Sverity would like, to, of course, to address both of the poles. Okay. But I think the human pole is much more difficult. GDPR, AE does than the inertia to kind of to convince people to use specific technology, specific wallet. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very, very tough questions. And we think. That the other side of the continuum where I would like to have this full traceability of an object for compliance reasons, for yep. good reasons, because I would like to protect patient health. I would like to provide, let's say, an order trail for circular economy and for this good or to kind of to protect the safety of food because I have the provenance. I know where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. And this is the poll where, so where we address um, our technology because we think from adoption perspective, it's kind of more realistic to push it short term into production. And that's what we actually do in the, in the pharma, pharma supply chain area. And that's the reason why we more, more focus on enterprise and specifically object identity. Okay. And when we do an API integration with legacy systems, manufacturing execution systems, uh, global artwork databases, ERP systems, then API integration is kind of uh, reasonable to be done, okay. but then you can significantly scale the technology because then you scale with the number of objects um, or the number of pharmaceutical products um, that's being produced by um, yeah, by the company.
1: Right. Um, some pertinent points uh, that you raised there. I think it's, it's a great time to now um, segue into the role of enterprise identity in supply chains today. Um, supply chains, as you might know, are often seen as this complex value chain of sorts comprising of a wide range of parties. Uh, there's no clear understanding as in who actually is part of this entire value chain, you know, be it vendors, wholesalers, regulators. There are a whole bunch of parties, so to say. So could you perhaps start off this discussion by highlighting what are the typical identities in a traditional end-to-end
0: life cycle? In a supply chain, I think when... That's, maybe it's pretty easy yeah. because we, we all need to go to the GS1 uh, to this global standardization okay. of identifiers and they have identifiers called a GTIN, a global trade identification number. And then they have another identifier called a serialized mm-hmm. GTIN. So a, a GTIN is basically right. um, an identifier for a specific product, but a serialized GTIN is basically breaking it down to batch level and even to serial number level. That's one part of the identifiers. Another part, for example, is so-called GLN (Global Location Number) or Party GLN (PGLNs) that are representing a legal entity or, uh, or a company, and these are the kind of identifiers that are given okay. today everywhere in the supply chain. But we cannot verify anything, so we have no instruments, no tools to find out is it really coming from a company with a real GLN a (GS1 identifier) or someone else kind of just Mm -hmm. using the GLN or just producing data on behalf of a GLN of a company. There are no instruments and tools, but for compliance, post-efficiencies, automations, there's an urgent need in regulated industries to have tools in place to verify the authenticity and integrity of data.
1: Right, so you're pretty much forced to believe um, what's in front of you, essentially. And is that the fundamental issue with supply chains today? Um, Is there a missing trust layer?
0: Yeah, I think today um, there are a couple of tools in place. One is called EPCIS, where you have specific messages. There's a, 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 a tier two supplier, tier one supplier, and a customer. And then the messages are being created, exchanged among each other. But still, so there's, there's no tools to verify the authenticity. And first, it starts with authenticity of the product. So how can I prove the authenticity of the product? Mm-hmm. And from our perspective, there are kind of two different kind of, let's say key technologies in place. So one is to put an identifier on the product, an identifier with a randomized serial number. So which means if I'm a malicious actor, for example, the pharma industry and I'm producing fake pharmaceutical products, yeah, then it's almost impossible for me to guess a valid serial number because the manufacturer uses randomized serial numbers for pharmaceutical packages, which means I, as a verifier, let's say I have a patient or I have the pharmacy. If I scan the identifier, I can send the request to the manufacturer. And then the manufacturer is basically looking up the serial number in this database and finding out is it a real serial number from us or is it a serial number from malicious actor. And this is how I can prove the authenticity. In addition, so what what I think that maybe that the first the first digital layer in terms of working with randomized serial numbers um, the the other um, technology that can be put on top is security technologies and security features from the money printing industry and that's where we where we see a lot of players that are providing security features that are kind of protecting yeah the authenticity of money to make sure we kind of and reprint money. So all these players are also trying to to go in a supply chain for supply chain integrity, for product authenticity use cases. And that's, that's still a big problem. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't end with product authenticity. It's also about very simple things such as an e-leaflet, an electronic leaflet, yeah? Because if I, am as a hacker, can put a fake leaflet, uh, electronic or digital leaflet can attach it to a pharmaceutical product, then um, the patient might get the wrong instructions how to consume the pharmaceutical product. This could have significant impact on, on patient health. But also if we think about machines, if I can sneak in a fake uh, uh, leaflet for a machine and then people that are maintaining or installing the machines, they basically, this can be very, very, can have a very bad impact on, on the health and safety. Because if there's a high-voltage power line and it doesn't explain how to, 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 to disable the high-voltage high power line and attach the high-voltage power line, then it's, it can be very, very mm-hmm. have, have very significant impact on, on my health. So it's about authenticity. It's about leaflets. It's about product recalls. Because how do I know as a manufacturer who is uh, owning the product, who is using it? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I have a product recall, I must need to contact the end consumer. So that's that's another other use case um, product uh, recall, but also back to birth life cycle for circular goods. So for example, what plastics ingredients are in the casing? Yeah, is this biosourced plastics? Is this uh, biodegradable plastics? How do I recycle it? It's very important information. And if I if, if the entire system is not secure, so then I'm kind of screwing up my my circular economy um, or p- plastic recycling systems. And all of this are um, very, very important use cases up to customs. So we also have a project with the U.S. um, Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protections. So we even think this is Mm -hmm. technology, serialization, digital twinning is also last line of defense for circular economy because let's let's assume we are here in Germany and getting products from Asia. And we only in the EU, we only would like to let, let in products with a clear, circular, renewable, sustainable um, history. And um, let's say basically renewable energy was used to produce them. Biosourced plastics was, was used kind of to produce them. So if I would like to do this, then the customs organization must have the tools in the hand to check the serial number, to go to digital twin, to go back to the audit tray and find out is, is the proper circular object or the mm-hmm. fake circular object. And the fake circular objects are locked out. From, from our perspective, it's a, it's, a, it's enabling technology for also the circular economy. And all these kind of, let's say, features are very fascinating. And we're still only talking about object identity, object digital twin. And there are plenty, plenty of um, yeah, excellent and, and comprehensive um, use cases.
1: Right. Um, you raise an interesting point there about the circular economy. Um, I'm curious to know, um, what is the role of identity in a circular future? Uh, according to you,
0: um, so for us it's all about provenance, yeah. And provenance starts with the company who provides components. So who basically is the company that manufactured components that are be- then being assembled, um, yeah, to produce a product, for example. So I need to know the identity of the companies mm-hmm. that are producing the components, and this is where it all starts. Yeah, can I trust it? Uh, is it the real company, the fake company. Is this company who produced okay. the component, is it coming from, uh, from a country with export compliance issues or is it coming from a proper, proper country? Do they, do they do their work in accordance to environment, health and safety standards? Do they do their work in, co- in, in, um, in, uh, in accordance to labor rights, um, anti-bribery, child labor? And when I can check this, I can start trusting the company, and then I can start trusting the origin of the data of a product. And then I think as as it's um yeah, I think maybe for for the audience pretty pretty clear that when components are being assembled to product and then they're transformed, and then I have my circular object um, at an end customer, I would like to have the full the full back-to-birth traceability. Mm-hmm. Um, because if some of the players is kind of cheating, then I cannot trust the end product. And that's still a very, very big problem. When I have a digital twin in an end product, so how can I trust the data mm-hmm. that are describing the end product? And all how can I trust all the supply chain actors that's part, part of the circular economy? This sounds like a very big, complex problem. And I think the uh, critical success factor is to start very, very simple. with very simple use cases that are doable and not to try to solve the entire circular economy problem um, from the start, but to start with very simple use Mm -hmm. cases.
1: Okay. Um, And to add to that, um, in our first episode on this podcast with um, Dr. Harry Behrens, he mentioned that in a B2B setting, um, the trust authority almost always goes to a root, particularly in regulated industries. So how do you ensure that the credentialing authority is who they actually claim to be? Yeah.
0: I think this, this is a very important contact concept. It's basically similar what we know from public key infrastructure. We have trust hierarchies in the X509 world and in the internet with the root, root certificate authorities. And if you would like, and what, what are basically all these decentralized identity solutions and verifiable credentials all about? It's exactly the same context concept as X509. It's more standardized. It's more extensible. It's more flexible. It allows more di- or different so-called trust domains. But in a given trust domain, I need to know who the, the 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 um yeah, the root the root authority that are issuing certificates. And today in the internet, so we have a couple of tools. One is the so-called well-known tool, because I always need to to able to verify the identity of the root authority. And the root authority could be the government. The root authority could be the global legal entity mm-hmm. identifier foundation that is establishing global governance and infrastructure for verifying enterprise identity. And then I need this well-known tool. And well-known basically says there's an identifier of a company and then there's public keys that are representing the company or that are being used by the by the, by the root um, authority to sign yeah, certificates, for example, enterprise verification certificates. And then I need to check that does is this identifier? Does it really belong to the root authority? For example, the German government. Does the identifier belong to the German government? And do the public keys really belong, belong to the root identifier? And if I can check this, then I can establish a trust hierarchy. Mm. And then when I get a verifiable credential or signed data payload, I can basically cryptographically verify it. I can also check. Do the keys belong to the entity? Was the entity being verified, for example, by the German government? And do the keys of the verifiable credential, uh, um, verification credential really belong to the German government? That's a root hierarchy. I have to do the entire trust chain. And that's, by the way, why decentralized entity is still Mm -hmm. challenging, but that's kind of trust hierarchies must be solved. And that's where a lot of. Yeah, momentum um, is established right now to really get this in place.
1: Brilliant. Um, the term decentralized identity is almost always associated with blockchain technology. Um, why is this so? And um, could you perhaps uh, double click on this relationship between blockchain and decentralized identity?
0: Yeah, basically, in decentralized identity, the, it all starts... That I, as a identity subject or identity controller, I would like identifier, and I don't go. And that's a big difference. I don't go to centralized platform that are creating the identifier and the public-private mm-hmm. key pair on my behalf. If I would do it, and what all the kind of existing systems are about today, then an administrator can kind of try to cheat. There are a lot of attack vectors. Yeah, administrator can kind of manipulate the the keys, can steal the private key can manipulate the identifiers. This is a problem with all centralized platforms. In decentralized identity, it's different. So I, as an identity subject with my identity controller, I basically, out of randomness, out of an arbitrary noise, I create a seed, and then I create a Mm public-private key pair. I fully control it. There's no one else who's controlling it. And when I create the public-private key pair, out of the public key, I create an identifier. And now, yeah, what do I need to do now? I know I need to make sure my counter counterparties know the decentralized identifier, plus they have the tools to look up my the public signing keys for this identifier, Mm -hmm. and then you need to broadcast them or to inform them. Yeah. And blockchain is a very handy tool because what I can basically do, I can establish a smart contract and in the smart contract, I register my identifier plus my signing keys for this identifier and the smart contract is making sure. So when I'm changing this, that only I as an identity controller can change it. Mm. So and this is what cryptographers call bootstrapping the entropy. Yeah? This is basically uh, the blockchain is providing the instrument that other people can look up for my identifier. So what are the other corresponding keys that are being used for signing, for signing data on my behalf? And um, as a blockchain is immutable and publicly accessible, that's a perfect tool yeah, to basically um, communicate the keys to my identifier. And then there's a second use case. If I have an identifier, I also would like to enable people that they can look up a service endpoint or a URL of a service that belongs to my identifier. And there's an analogy with the DNS. So in the DNS today, we basically have, it's a lookup, it's a mapping tool. Between IT address, I, I, between an IP address uh, and a domain name. And that's exactly what we are doing here. So the other perspective on decentralized identity is a decentralization of the DNS because here I have an identifier. I basically, which is kind of, let's say, um, yeah, maybe a domain name. And then I basically can, can, can look up the identifier service endpoint. And then I can go to service endpoint to so URL and interact in a digital way on the internet with yeah with me as an identity subject. And those are the two um, very important tools uh, of features of these the assigning keys, communicating them, and communicating service endpoints. And if I put it on immutable ledger where I only have control about the data, then I can be sure that everyone can read it and kind of find out the keys and interact with my service endpoint. And um, I have the tool to communicate it to everyone else, a tool that's fully controlled by my own, there's no third party involved that can try to to lock me out, to manipulate my identity, and that's that's being avoided by the use of blockchain.
1: Right, so now that we've discussed the, the current state of play in supply chains, I think um, it's a good time to deep dive into the future of um, Industry 4.0. Um, according to you, what are some of the biggest inefficiencies you see when it comes to supply chain network design? And um, more importantly, is there any room for ecosystem innovation?
0: From a combinatoric perspective, yeah. So when we think about the combinatorics Mm -hmm. problem here, because when everything can connect with everything else, then I need a technology, I need a trust layer that um, provides the instruments to establish trust among parties that have never met before. If I would like to do it with classical systems, with what people call identity federation, then I have some centralized systems. I have to connect all of them to make sure they're properly federated and connected. But if I'm in a, mm-hmm. in a, in a, a cyber physics supply chain, this is impossible. I cannot, I cannot predict all the possible combinatorics, how things are being connected and how right. do I federate them. And the, the combinatorics, it's so, so impossible to enable the cyber physical value chains, um, that you need to find other ways. And the decentralized entity ca- gets rid of all the um, federation. So it's basically it's kind of self-controlled. I can request some credentials, establish trust. I can go go up a route of trust or uh, a trust chain to find out if um, the credentials are correct, This is establishing completely new means. And when I can basically verify where the data are coming from, from which company, which algorithm, which object, I can also put what we call risk scoring in place. Yeah. And then I can give in the future data a risk score, especially in a more com- yeah, kind of, let's say, in a, in a typical cyber physical value chain. There's so many data that are blended, processed and merged to establish, for example, digital twin of a manufactured product. But, um, I can, e- I can be e- either naive and trust all the data in the digital twin or establish some tools to trust mm-hmm. scoring on the data. And then I can have some threshold decisions and can make up my own mind, whether I trust the data um, in digital twin or not. But this is very important, especially when um, machine learning comes into play as well. So when I feed machine learning mm-hmm. algorithms, I get machine learning labels out of the algorithms, then it's even more important to find out, can I trust the machine learning algorithm? Is it benchmarked? What was mm-hmm. the trainings data? Was it biased? And even if I trust the world best machine learning algorithm, what are the input data? Was it fake cars or was it uh, real BMWs? Yeah. If I can check the input right. data that went in an algorithm, um, when I get the output machine learning labels, so then I can establish a risk score, then I can trust them, then I can use them for decisions, mm. for autonomous, uh, driving backend, for, uh, driver assistance systems, for risk propositions, for traffic control systems, for mapping systems. I need to trust the data, the provenance of the data being processed, and that's that's the kind of, from from our perspective the um, the big as um, a uh, big opportunity with, with this technology.
1: Right, I think you raise a a very important point there uh, um, with regard to the verification of trust, and I think that is a concept that we can definitely touch upon later in this podcast. Um, for now, I'd again like to shift back um, the focus onto Industry 4.0. Um, you've seen the industry evolve for some time now. And um, in your opinion, what are the four or five um, ingredients that organizations need to consider to successfully bring any new technology to domain?
0: Yeah, from, from my perspective, first, it starts with simplicity to find these really, really simple use cases few supply chain actors few data sets um and few systems um that i can basically connect to have to have a proper business value already yeah so which means i would like to have a precise integration of few systems and not to have this very complex boil the ocean approach in it so it's simplicity it's also education so for us as a startup so we prefer to engage with People's people and businesses that are already educated. Yeah. That's a very important ingredient because otherwise, yeah, we have to do one or two years additional education and then we bring nothing to the market. So it's implicit. It's simplicity. It's education. It's a business case. So if there's not a business case, then it's difficult. What we see the best business case right now because this is an ecosystem technology. The business case can be dilutive. It's more systemic business case where everyone kind of benefits. But how do I benefit? What's my business case? What's in it for me? It's unclear. But if there's regulatory requirements for provenance, for auditability, for back-to-birth traceability, if these requirements are there, then these compliance requirements are the business case. Because today, there's a lot of paperwork. It's manual work. It's a lot of, let's say, quality inspectors, if I can digitize all of this, or if I can avoid fines or penalties because I'm not compliant. So this, from our perspective, compliance process cost reduction. So that's a business case um, for short-term implementation. So I mentioned Mm -hmm. simplicity. I mentioned uh, the education and the the, the process compliance. I would like to mention two more. So one is um, that there's an ecosystem, a full ecosystem. Because this technology doesn't okay. make sense if it's just one company introduce it. So it's very important to have, let's say, a consistent ecosystem where everyone shares the same common goal. For example, to reduce compliance cost. And last but not least, very important because we mentioned this trust domains and some we need to do some enterprise identity verification. That's where it all starts. This is this is normally not in place. Yeah. It's still a big question. So who says that Bosch is Bosch, Siemens, Siemens, mm-hmm. Deutsche Bahn is Deutsche Bahn, or EDF is EDF or Thales is Thales. Someone has to say this. And um, this, is, this is still a tough question where the Global Legal Entity Identifier Foundation is working on, where GS1 is working on. But if we would like to bring something to production today, you cannot wait. And this is something what we figured out in the uh, in, in US. Whereas the US Drug Supply Chain Security Act, we could bootstrap an existing mm-hmm. um, yeah, digital identity. When we look into pharma supply chains, there's a drug enforcement agency. And the drug enforcement agency started around 15 years ago to provide so-called X509 signing certificates to all the supply chain actors. Um, because if I, it's called controlled substance, it's kind of narcotica and, mm-hmm. these, and, and drugs. Uh, the, um, the, the real drugs, um, and then this is fully regulated, and because compliance, the DEA provided in a, in a good process, um, the X509 signing certificates, and we, we basically bootstrap this. So the solution we're implementing there is bootstrapping the DEA trust domain, um, and this is fantastic for us because we don't need to verify mm-hmm. anyone, so we can do a combination of DIDs and right. DEA X509 signing certificates. And then we can establish digital identities. Then we can establish so-called authorized trading partner um, credentials. And this is how we can bring it to production without the need to solve the problem of enterprise identity verification because in principle that's solvable, but in in practice it's it's not being solved uh, because there's no infrastructure in place and no consistent credentials. And this this is fantastic, and that's that's the reason why we – but we like, like this Australia's trading partner use case in uh, in US very much. Uh, there's the sixth ingredient I would like to mention this, Brilliant. because when you have all the wallets, the decentralized anti wallets, you need to go to every supply chain actor, yeah, and give the wallet. Uh, you have to sell it to them. You have to integrate it to mm-hmm. to all the pharma companies and wholesalers. Then you have to validate and test it. That's a lot of work. Even from a commercial perspective, this, this is this is almost un, this is in, unbelievable amount of work. But in this use case in US, there are so called men in the middle, mm-hmm. and in, in this authorized trading partner use case, okay. um, um, it's regulated by FDA. It's a US Drug Supply Chain Security Act. Everyone, every supply chain participant wants to reduce compliance cost. They don't have, let's say, um, a more principle discussion. Do I control the wallet? Is it a custody wallet or a non-custodial wallet? This doesn't matter. What matters is to reduce the compliance cost and to, to establish a secure system. And as there are men in the middle, for us, it's very interesting. Um, they're called so-called verification routing service providers and to provide a lookup service. There are a few of them. If we integrate our solution, our wallet with this verification routing service providers with a man in the middle, it's for us a fantastic route to market because they are connected mm-hmm. to all supply chain actors, and we all need to go to the very few VS providers. For example, SAP, FXL, TraceLinks, just to name three of them. We basically need to go to three of them, and they basically, uh, yeah, have outsourced the, the 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 wholesalers and pharma companies outsourced the posts to them. And then by integrating with with the VS providers, we can basically kind of switch the entire uh, industry. To use our technology, it's fantastic because otherwise we have to go to every pharma company and kind of to, in, in a very manual work, to somehow integrate our wallet and by integrating our APIs to few men in the middle, that's fantastic from routes, route to market and route to adoption.
1: Right. Um, great insights there, Carsten. I think that's a great playbook you've put out there for anyone looking to move towards supply chain 2.0 or upgrade their supply chain systems. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that's clear from our conversation so far is that we are living in in narrative driven society. I mean if you look at all the institutions around us the media the politicians and and whoever you know almost always we are told to believe a certain kind of truth without being able to verify it. And then all of a sudden comes this incredible piece of technology called blockchain that gives us the ability to not just verify the truth but also be sure that what's in front of you Is actually what it means you know be it in the case of provenance of raw materials or in the case of nfts where we can now track and verify the authenticity of non-fungible assets that are scarce and 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 unique be it a piece of physical art or digital art you name it i'm curious to know how do you see this move playing out in society um by this move i mean the intersection of decentralized identifiers dids and nfts
0: Mm -hmm. i think so the verification of truth that's about the trustworthiness and that's i think it's all coming back again to the risk scoring yeah because truth is not something binary it's either true or not true it's kind of convolution yeah because I have so many different data for example in the pandemic so what's the truth is is, is the truth that with that there's more infections or less infections uh, what is the truth when I make a specific policy? So how will, what is the impact on the infections? Um, what is what is the what is the risk for me personally for my age? There's there's a lot of probabilities, yeah. And in, in supply chains, in art, in um, yeah, in e-commerce, there's all always a lot of data. Data are blended together. Um, I get a lot of data. I think also think truth is not binary. I think in the end, and this is even unexplored, there must be tools kind of to um, to assess more the risks of using the data, of trusting the data. And that's something that's still unexplored because even in the dids and Verifiable Credential um, domain, people think a little bit, bit binary, yeah, or they have a driver license, or I have not a driver license, or I have a, a COVID vaccination test certificate, or I don't have it. But what can go wrong? so when I go to a test center yeah can, the test center can basically screw up my name yeah and screw up my sample. The test centre could be a te- test centre with very poor quality management, yeah which means the lab equipment is not maintained correctly, so the outcome is prob- has also some some probability, and then they basically can yeah then they have to 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 give me a certificate about the test yeah. Uh, how do they ensure that they give it to the right person and that the right person authenticated it there? So what I would like to say, it's all about a lot of risk, risk matrix, and I need to understand and have proper scoring. I think that's truth. Um, But you mentioned the the NFCs and the dits. So a lot of people are putting art as an NFT, a non-functional token. And first of all, uh, what do I know about the artist? What is the real artist? What do I know about the art? Is there, is there just one piece existing of the art? Or is the series of one million pieces of the art with only tiny differences, yeah? So if there's one million, then it's less, the value is much less compared compared to scarcity if the artist just did one of the pieces of art, yeah? So again, need to, to, to know that the provenance, and I think even from a legal perspective, so if someone puts an NFT on Ethereum, so how can I make sure the same person is not setting an NFT on Bitcoin, Polkadot, uh, on uh, Cardano or any, any other chain? Yeah? So how do I ensure it? And then it's kind of at the physical digital intersection with, with some legal perspectives. How do I do this? But anyway, I think that's, that's kind of, let's say the broader perspectives here in terms of pools. And you mentioned the NFTs and dids From a tank perspective, there are a lot of similarities. Because uh, an NFT is called, controlled by an owner and then I can do ownership transactions, I can give it to a new owner, I can also establish uh, trans, uh, fractional ownership um, to, yeah, for example, there's an expensive bottle of wine. I can give it either to one person that's controlling the NFT that's representing the, the bottle of wine and I have to show the NFT before I get it or there can be multiple owners. Yeah, then have, have the concept of um, fraction ownership. And in addition, if ownership is changing in the NFT, I, I might be able to see the chain of custody. And that's also for some supply chain use case relevant. Um, for luxury goods, it can be connected to authenticity. I can do similar things with the DITs. With the DITs, I also control it. Um, I can basically even change the ownership by kind of giving control about the DIT to you. Um, then have the service endpoint where I can find a digital twin. Digital twin can be digital twin to art. I can describe the provenance of the art and the, the heritage of the artist with verifiable credentials. So we see a lot of intersection between DITs and, and, and NFTs, but I, um, and f- especially for, for the question of provenance of NFTs, and this is pretty much unexplored yet. I think it's uncharted territory, and my prediction is that there will be a lot of, um yeah, Mm, work going on in combining NFTs, dids, verifiable credentials in the not-so-far future.
1: Right. And finally, I now want to explore the the cultural revolution of sorts that is unfolding in front of our eyes. Um, You recently wrote an article on the principle of duality in science and art uh, that is changing the course of tech and marketing. I personally think it's a fascinating read. And for our audience, I'll post a link to the article in the description box below. Um, I personally would like to add on to it and call it a trifecta of sorts because we're now seeing athletes jump on the bandwagon and get associated with emerging technologies. You're seeing the newly crowned quarterback of DAGS, um, Trevor Lawrence, signing with Blockify. You also have Zilliqa now partnering with nine top football stars to endorse their product. So my question to you is, why is this a recipe for success uh, when it comes to marketing in today's
0: world? I personally think from a technology perspective, there's a concept called crossing the chasm, yeah? So, and you have to kind of, are kind have the best technology, um, but you need to have this early adopters, yeah? Uh, and, but this is even not enough. So you have crossed the chasm when there's an early majority, yeah? And you, and if you don't reach an early majority, then no one really uses your technology outside a lab or outside a field test, yeah? But as a technology technologist and entrepreneur, you're only um yeah successful when you can reach the early majority and I think when you think about the athletes and the artists, so they have quite some reach yeah, and they can help you bootstrap um, uh, yeah to the crossing to the crossing the chasm because if they're interested in technology they can leverage this for for their benefit or for the greater good of society and they can help to establish an ecosystem they can help kind of to transporting the message the narrative to the early majority i think this this is a fascinating duality of um, yeah of kind of combining technology with the reach of of athletes and artists and that's what's 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 pretty fascinating
1: brilliant uh, i think now it's time for the best part of the podcast it's time for frontier fire where i'll pose a series of rapid fire questions to our guests on the pod so, Karsten, are you ready for the challenge? Yes. yeah. Brilliant. Let's get started. Um, I'm curious to know, what's the best application of physics in everyday life?
0: Well, from my perspective, I like statistical physics, pretty much, because if you apply statistics, statistical physics for machine learnings, for predictions, for everyday's life, for social, for economic, for technical questions, um so that's 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 from my perspective the best best application to forecast the future, to predict the future, to make better decisions for, yeah, for all of us.
1: And what is the best business advice you've ever received?
0: Oh, the best piece of advice. So from my perspective is really um uh humility because you sometimes people think They can control something, they own something, they have found the the big insight and now they can change the world. And usually it's not so easy. I think humility is very important to have a little bit bit relaxed. You would like to solve something, but you need to be realistic how to achieve it, but still you can grow aggressive, but humility it's it's what, what I really like in terms of advice to apply the principle of humility. Also, also in terms of conversation of the uh, of the species of of life of human beings, that's also very important um, in from my perspective in decision making.
1: Um, if a movie was made on your life, what genre would it be?
0: So I like movies about scientists. Yeah, so there's a science movie about um, John Nash, um, the mathematician and the Nobel Prize winner. It's called a beautiful mind, yeah. Then there's another movie about, um, uh, Alan Turing. And it's so fascinating what, what, what kind of personal fights they have with themselves, with, 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 with their inner being, this kind of trying to open themselves, to innovate, to bring new mathematics, to bring new encryption and, but then to struggling in everyday lives. So this is very fascinating because this is a micro, yeah, micro system. So where where people have the tools and the capabilities to do something great, but they're struggling with, with the tiny things. And if you, if we you, if we if we kind of let's say um, transform it to a macro level, the planet Earth, it's still it's still for us humans. I think so. We all we all have all the knowledge and all the tools and science to understand that that we're destroying the planet, but we're really struggling and, and cannot really change our course. And that's. So that's that's what I like to con- connect the science and struggle of people with um, yeah so the greater climate change problems we're in today.
1: And speaking about struggles, um, what is the one thing people don't know about entrepreneurship?
0: Poh, I think from my perspective, so I was a consultant. it was super easy as a consultant to sell stuff to enterprises, yeah incredibly easy to sell other consulting projects system integration projects strategy project super easy and then to sell even more clients and doing transformation implementation as an entrepreneur especially if you do b2b focus on b2b it's it's the, just the opposite it's so it's so super hard super difficult to sell emerging technology where the business case is not clear, to sell it to companies, you know? because especially let's say in Europe, in Germany, people would like to have a crystal clear business case. Then they start investing. They don't invest in hypotheses. That they need to build the capabilities to kind of to work with the technology. And I think this is the second, second, second one big thing is that decisions and implementation route marks are changing because a lot of technologies are ecosystem technologies, and this requires a different approach, Yeah, because you cannot just sell it to one company and be successful. You have to kind of to sell it to an ecosystem with dependencies, because there's fusion of technologies, the dependencies among technologies, and that's, 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 that's kind of tough challenges. But um, yeah, if you kind of have, let's say, an ecosystem innovation approach in mind, um, yeah, that's probably a prerequisite.
1: Finally, What's your advice to anyone listening to this podcast?
0: Poo, my, my advice is basically so so never give give up um, and be very flexible because when all of you is kind of pushing forward the decentralized identity bandwagon, uh, you have to be very flexible. You cannot kind of focus on just one domain, one problem piece for if that's what venture capitalist wants to see. So it's unclear where where to start, and I think to be able to pivot among different domains propositions. I think this, 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 this flexibility um, is very important and also the ability to execute, to learn fast When going into another business domain. That's um, very important.
1: Karsten, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for shedding light on the increasingly important role of provenance in the world tomorrow. I hope to have you again on this podcast and wish you and your team at Farity the very best of luck going forward. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you, Rash for having me. And it was a fantastic experience being on your Frontier show.
1: That was Dr. Carsten Stoker. Carsten will be speaking at the European Identity and Cloud Conference, EIC. And you can get your tickets to the event via the link in the description box below. I hope you enjoyed this conversation that dabbled around NFTs, provenance, and the cultural revolution. Um, if you think anyone would benefit from this information, please go on and share this with them. Um, Until next time, this is me Raj Hekday and I hope to see you all again on this incredible journey to redefine the I in identity. Stay safe, stay happy.